The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your good name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. If we haven't uh, met yet, my name is Aaron and I have the joy of serving as teaching pastor here at uh, Quorum Dale. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. This morning, we actually uh, wrap up our summer series through Psalms. If you've been around for any like the time, you know that every summer we take maybe eight, nine, ten weeks or so and kind of work our way through the Psalms kind of one after another. Next summer, we'll pick up uh, with Psalm 53. But this uh, today, we're finishing up for this summer, Psalm 52. Uh, Before we dive into Psalm 52, just kind of give you a heads up as to where we're headed into the fall as far as teaching and and sermons go. For the next four weeks, we're going to be taking our time, Pastor Bob will be taking our time through kind of a a series on what is the church and what does it mean to be a part of Coramdale Church and what is Coramdale Church all about. So really excited about that and look forward to having you out uh, for that. And then about mid-September, I think it's September 10th, we're going to launch a series through the New Testament letter uh, of Philippians. And so that'll take us through the rest of our calendar year uh, in 2023. So really looking forward to that time as we dive into uh, the New Testament and hearing what Paul has to say to the church in Philippi and how that intersects with our lives uh, today. But like I've already mentioned, Psalm 52 this morning, before we dive into the actual text as far as verse 1 is concerned, I wanted to actually point our attention to what most scholars call the subscript that actually begins the actual original psalm in the original text. If you have your Bible... Just kind of look up right above verse 1, and you'll read these words with me. It says this, to the choir master, and this is kind of giving the orientation of the background of when this psalm was written, why this psalm was written, to the choir master, which is a way of kind of saying perhaps to Israel's worship leader, to the one who was going to lead Israel through liturgical worship, a maskil, which is just a word for song, more than likely, a maskil of David, And here's what I want us to kind of highlight or flag in the back of our heads as we dive into this psalm. When Doeg, the Edomite, came to Saul and and told David, and told Saul, sorry, David has come to the house of Elimelech. And if you're like me, at least when I was kind of first working through this psalm, I'm like, I kind of remember a little bit of what that is. It sounds somewhat familiar. 
And don't worry, I'm not going to go through a whole study on this, but just want to jog our memory a little bit if that sounds unfamiliar to you, what that setting is describing. And what David, who wrote this psalm, is describing is a story that happened back in your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. And at this point in David's life, David, in, back in 1 Samuel 16, was anointed as king of Israel, but is going to spend basically the last half of the book of 1 Samuel running for his life because King Saul, who's actually king at the moment, is basically going to, is, at, at, for, is chasing David around all of Israel, trying to kill David, trying to, trying to take him away so that he is not, who, so he doesn't become king. And at this moment in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, David's sort of trying to seek some refuge at this place called Nob. And David comes to Nob, seeks some refuge. And what ends up happening in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is that there happens to be this guy, Doeg the Edomite there. And Doeg recognizes David, sees David, and then goes back to Saul and tells Saul, hey, Saul, guess what? I found the guy you're looking for, the guy that you've been chasing around, David. He's at this place called Nob. And what happens after that is Saul then has Doeg the Edomite kind of try to go back to the people at Nob and say, why were you basically housing David? Why were you keeping David safe from me? I'm the king. I'm in charge. I'm the one who's supposed to kind of have control of this area. Why are you not following me? And so at the instruction of Saul, Doeg the Edomite slaughters over 85 people, men, women, and children. It's a scene of horrific evil and injustice. And it's on the heels of this injustice, on the heels of this horrific evil, that David pens these words here in Psalm 52. And I want us to kind of keep that in the back of our heads as we go through this text line by line. Now, another quick observation I want to make for us as we look at this psalm is I want you to notice that both at the very beginning and at the very end, David refers to the steadfast love of God. Did you notice that at the very beginning and then at the very last verse? The steadfast love of God. So even though David has seen and witnessed horrific evil, David is still able to cling to and hold on to God's steadfast love. And if you look right in the middle of the psalm, right around verse 5, David proclaims and announces God's judgment on the wicked, in particular Doeg the Edomite that God is going to, verse 5, uproot you from the land of the living. And notice just kind of the structure of how this psalm, if you kind of picture a sandwich, right? The steadfast love of God is like the bread on the outer, on the outer sides with God's judgment right in the middle. And for David, God's steadfast love and his judgment, they actually go together. It's not as if God's judge, judgment and justice and God's steadfast love are contradictory things for David. No, these two things actually go together. And this is what I want to kind of flesh out for us working through this psalm, that God is a God of steadfast love and God is a God of justice and judgment. And that, friends, is good news for us. I want us to see how these twin truths that actually go together give David this kind of anchor, this, this poise, and this confidence in the face of horrific evil. So I'm going to break this down for us in sort of three movements or three parts. And I want us to see how 
God's justice and judgment and steadfast love allows David, number one, to, to recognize evil for what it is, to call it out, to be honest, to, to name evil for the evil that it is. But also, number two, David is free to release outcomes to God. And last but not least, we'll see how this twin truth of God's justice and steadfast love allows David to rest in God. All right, so number one, recognize evil. Starting in verse one of Psalm 52, we read this. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. You know, it seems right off the bat, verse one, David is referring to Doeg as, quote, O mighty man. And it's this phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe a valiant warrior, someone who is courageous, someone who's bold. But in this instance, most commentators recognize that David is doing a little bit of sanctified taunting at this moment. That David really isn't saying, Doeg, you're this man of valor. No, David is actually pointing out the fact that, Doeg, you're actually a coward. You're actually someone who isn't courageous. You're actually someone who is done horrific evil because he goes on, David does verse two, your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Now, I find this really interesting here in verse two, that right off the heels of Doeg committing, doing horrific evil, slaughtering and murdering people, David points out not necessarily the action that Doeg has done, but notice the speech. Your tongue plots destruction. David seems to recognize and see evil at the root of where it comes from. Think about later in the New Testament, James, the apostle James in James chapter 3, describes evil speech as like being set on fire by the flames of hell itself. Jesus himself would say it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And why is this significant? Well, even though Doeg, yes, has committed horrific evil and has done this horrendous action, there seems to be this reality with David and the rest of the scriptures that evil is something that can even be starting out with just our own speech, even with our own words. There's this reality that we can sort of evaluate, if you will, the state of one's heart or of our own hearts based on the speech that comes out of our mouth. Your tongue, David says, plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, razor. verse three, you love evil more than good. And again, David sees that there's something deep down with Doeg's motivation, with the evil worker's motivation. You love evil. I was expecting David to say when I first was reading this, you do evil. David doesn't say that. David says you love evil. Meaning there's something in the motivation. There's something in kind of the core being of what's driving this evil worker to do the things that this Doeg is doing, but David's naming and pointing out. He's recognizing the source of where evil comes from, one's motivations, one's heart, one's longing. You love evil more than good. 
and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. Again, that invitation to pause and to reflect. That David sees and recognizes evil for what it is. He recognizes evil as far as the source of evil within Doeg's own human heart, his, his own tongue, his own motivations. And David goes on in verse 4, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And I just want us to pause here for a moment and really just recognize the point that we're trying to help flesh out, to recognize evil for what it is, right? That David doesn't kind of just stand back and sugarcoat this and, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal or it's just, you know, another thing that's going to kind of happen on, you know, my news feed. And David's not numb to the reality that there is real evil in the world. And David is not afraid to call out evil for what it is. And I think sometimes as Christians, there's a tendency, maybe a sort of a, a bashfulness at times, to, to look at the evil that we see in the world and to look at evil that's been done to us and to actually call it for what it is. Evil is evil. Terrorism is evil. Rape is evil. Those who cheat and abandon their spouses, that is an act of evil. The scriptures give us permission in clear moral categories to see the evil in our world and to see evil that's been done to us and to call it out for what it is. This is deceit. This is evil. This is not aligned with God's purposes. And friends, I want to give you that permission and even that courage to be the kinds of people that can go out into the world and not in sort of a way that I'm not, what I'm not talking about is, you know, just ranting on social media or just kind of being that annoying person that just, just belittles kind of everything that you might not like or, or agree with. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that in the face of real evil, horrific evil, David presents us with a godly example of recognizing that evil for what it is and naming it and calling it out. But this leads us, and this leads us to our second point. I want to hold these two in tension here. If number one is to recognize evil for what it is, to name it, to call it out, to, to say that this is evil. The second piece of this is number two, releasing outcomes to God. Take a look at verse five with me. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Again, verse 5 speaks to the reality that God is a judge, that God is a God of justice and of judgment. And we need to, to, to recognize this and not move past this, especially in our culture. We don't, we don't really like talking about God's judgment 
Let's be real. We love what I mentioned before, God's steadfast love. We love this idea that God is a God full of love and, and compassion and kindness. But we often don't really like talking about the fact that God is a judge. But I want to help you see, I want to convince you that God's judgment is actually good news for you and for me. And God being a God of justice is good news for our world. See, friends, David is able to release outcomes to God. What I mean by that phrase, that, God, uh, that David is able to entrust ultimate justice and judgment into the hands of God. David, yes, recognizes evil for what it is, has the courage to call it out for what it is, and at the same time is able to release the outcome of justice into the hands of God. And that's a hard thing to do. I know for me, I want to just kind of maybe seek revenge, maybe get back at that person or maybe try to take control in my own sort of way. But David, notice what he's saying here. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you. He will tear you from your tent. He is the one who's going to uproot Doeg from the land of the living. And people who aren't even Christians recognize that actually if we don't have a doctrine or, or a worldview that is able to hold some sort of reality bigger than ourselves to entrust justice to, it's just going to lead to just chaos and revenge and more violence. Albert Camus, a philosopher in the 20th century, wrote this in one of his books saying, for people like me who don't believe in a God, there is no alternative between total justice and utter despair. What he means by that is if you don't have a doctrine of God's justice or God's judgment, what that leads to is you as a human being seeking to control and get justice for yourself in the here and now. If there is no ultimate justice or ultimate judgment in the end, then what that means is that, friend, you must find justice now. You must get the judgment and the justice now that you seek. But because we believe in a God who is just and judges justly, David recognizes, we too should recognize, that we're free from seeking justice and judgment in our own terms, in our own way, in the here and now. Yes, this is, that, what I'm not saying is that we don't fight for justice. We don't fight for what is right. We don't seek to, to make things right in this world. I'm not saying those things. But that sense of wanting to have ultimate revenge, that sense of being gripped and sort of in a prison to wanting to seek out revenge. No, this psalm, David is saying, the Spirit of God is saying, no, you're free from that. Will not the judge of the earth, Genesis tells us, do what is right? And see the freedom that comes from that. Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian, a professor at Yale, a Christian, grew up in Croatia on the other side of the world and experienced in his own sort of personal life and his own background, violence and evil and injustice. And one of the things that he is really good at writing about 
is kind of bringing that experience, that personal experience that he's had of seeing horrendous evil, violence, and injustice done to his family, to his people, and then coming to America and noticing how, for the most part, there's a lot of comfort. We don't often experience horrific violence that other people in the world, like Mirslav Wolf and his family, have experienced. And he notices that there's something about that, 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 that kind of numbs us as Americans, in particular, to the reality and the necessity of God's judgment and justice. He writes this, one of his observations, one can smell a bit too much of the sweet aroma of suburban ideology, entertained often by people who are neither courageous nor honest enough to reflect on the implications of terror taking place right in the middle of their living rooms. And what he's referring to is that as we kind of watch the news on TV and see all the evil that's happening out in the world, there's a level that we kind of become numb to that. Now, I don't know if you've not noticed that, especially kind of with the advent of social media, just seeing all of the news stories again and again and again of all of the evil that's happening in the world. There's almost this kind of, I don't know, it's like another one, another moment of evil. And if we're not careful, our hearts can become numb to those things. But Wolf goes on and he says, evil must be separated from good. In, must be separate from good in darkness, from light. These are the causes of violence. And they must be remo- removed if a world of peace is to be established. See, friends, notice what he's saying. We need, you need, this world needs a God who will put everything to right, who will end all evil, who will judge evil for what it is and judge the wicked for what they have done. But I also want you to notice in this psalm, in the psalm, excuse me, how David is releasing outcomes to God. There's something that kind of blew my mind and kind of caught me off guard in this little section here of how David is releasing justice and outcomes to God. Take a look again, verse six with me. The righteous shall see and fear, and notice this, shall laugh, shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. What is up with this? The first time I read through that, that little portion there in verse six, that the righteous shall, shall laugh at the wicked, I'm like, that can't be in my Bible. That doesn't seem very Jesus-like. But again, put this in context a bit. Like I mentioned at the beginning, this is David, early on in his life, he's running from Saul. He's vulnerable. He's weak. He's just witnessed and experienced Doeg with all of this force and power, murder and destroy 85 people. David's the one who's weak and vulnerable here. And David recognizes this ability, this freedom to look at evil and to recognize, remember, recognize evil for what it is, for the horror of what it is, and at the same time, laugh at the foolishness of evil. Because David recognizes that this evil that Doeg is committing, the evil that we see and witness in our world, does not get the last word. 
Evil does not define God's people. Evil has no power over God's people. And in that sense, David is freed to laugh at evil. You have no power over me. To laugh at the horror that David has just witnessed. To look at it straight in the face and to laugh. Evil has no power over me, says David. And I want you to see that one of the ways that as God's people, we are to release outcomes to God, to entrust judgment and justice to God, is by laughter, is by looking at evil and laughing at it for the foolishness and the stupidity and for the lack of power that it ultimately has. There's something actually freeing in that moment of actually seeing the power in the steadfast love of God, in the goodness of God, in comparison to evil, and saying, evil, you stand no chance at all. You do not define the people of God. Now, David is not, I don't think, laughing at the destruction or reveling in the destruction of the wicked. David is not sort of relishing in the fact that someone is going to get destroyed or, or be judged by God. That's not what it seems to me is happening here. But what David is laughing at is the other foolishness of what evil actually is. That evil is a parasite. Evil is an intrusion. Evil is not part of God's ultimate plan. And David has this perspective. And again, this really threw me off because this, just my own personality this is not me, right? This is not, like, I don't like the idea of, I don't want to be, like, judged as someone who's, like, taunting anybody. That's just not my thing. And I'm not saying that's what we're supposed to be doing, what Psalm 52 is inviting us to do. But I do want us to see that what David is doing here is actually a godly thing. It's actually repeated a handful of times throughout the Psalms by God himself. I'm going to read a few passages here. I want you to just take note of this. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds and apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 37, 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Last one, Psalm 59 says this, there they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. Like we can get away with it. No one's gonna find out. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Notice, at least three times throughout the rest of the Psalter, the Lord himself laughs at the wicked. Because the Lord sees and knows evil for what it is. Knows the limited power of the evil that happens in this world and the evil that's even been done to us. 
then the Lord is near and is present and sees that and laughs at it. Because ultimately, Christian, you need to believe this. You need to know this. That any evil that's been done to you does not define you. Any evil that's been done to you or that you've experienced does not prohibit God's steadfast love in your life. Any evil that's been done to you or that you've experienced is not the end of your story. And perhaps one of the invitations that the Spirit might have for you this morning, maybe you're here this morning and perhaps you relate to someone like David here. You've either witnessed or even first on a first-hand basis have experienced evil, horrific evil done to you. Perhaps an invitation of the Spirit toward healing and wholeness is to look at that evil for what it is, to recognize it, to name it, to not glibly look past it. And at the same time, through the other side of that, to in a healthy, sanctified way, laugh at that evil. Because you know that evil has no power over you. And what would it look like for the Spirit of God to do that work in your life? What would it mean for you to hear the Spirit's invitation into that? To have God's perspective, the Lord's perspective that he has throughout the Psalms of the wicked and of the evil, that that is not what defines you, friend. God has something more for you. And in fact, we as Christians believe and recognize that those who are wicked, even our own enemies, either they're going to come to faith in Jesus and be covered by the blood of Jesus, or they're going to get what they deserve. God is a just and good God. David is resting in that fact. And I can't help but wonder if some of us need to rest in that reality as well, to rest in the goodness of God's judgment and to rest in the perspective of evil that the Lord himself has, to see it as the, the, how, how little power it's meant to have over us in our lives. Which leads me to my third and final point. If we're to see David recognizing evil for what it is, releasing those outcomes, number two, to God, releasing judgment to God, the last thing that David does. And he recognizes this because of, his, of God's steadfast love and God's judgment. Number three, he rests in God. He rests in God. Verse eight, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I love this section here. David goes, but I, I am like, and I love this, this imagery of I'm like a green olive tree. Now, what's the significance of that? I mean, there's so many things. If you were to go ask a, 
you know, an ancient Israelite. What, what does a green olive tree mean? What, what are we meant to picture? What is that, that image meant to convey? Oh, so many things are just coming together in that, that one little phrase. Think about even going back to the first psalm, right? A tree planted by still water. That, that is what the righteous are like. Those who trust and fear the Lord are like a tree planted by streams of living water whose fruit blossoms, whose leaves blossom in season and produce good fruit. It's this picture of stability. It's this picture of strength. It's this picture of flourishing. But even this idea of a green olive tree. I mean, olives in, in, in particular, and olive trees in particular, have this beautiful history throughout Israel's own scriptures. David himself, if you remember the detail in 1 Samuel 16, was anointed with olive oil. And olives and oil and trees, the kind of the conglomeration of those sort of images coming together reminds an ancient Israelite of, of the Spirit of God coming upon David. And so you have this picture of strength and stability and flourishing with, the, with this imagery of this relationship to the Spirit of God. And David says, in light of all of the wickedness that I've experienced and I've seen, out of, all, in, out of the light and all the injustice that I've seen with my own eyes, I, David says, I am like a green olive tree. Where? Planted, rooted in the house of God. Remember back to verse 5, David said, the wicked are like those that God's going to uproot David contrasts that with the imagery of a tree that's in, or kind of the idea is planted in the house of God. See, friends, the invitation of this psalm, it seems to me, is that we, like David, having God's perspective on evil that's happened to us or evil that we've experienced or evil that we see, is to become the kinds of people Trees, green olive trees planted in the house of God. In verse 8, trusting in God's steadfast love forever and ever. Think about this. Evil is coming to an end, David says in this psalm. Evil has an expiration date. But God's steadfast love goes on forever and ever. And this, friends, is what defines David. This is what David is holding on to. He is saying, I trust in God's steadfast love. And friends, this is one of those truths that we really need to grasp. We really need to be anchored in. God's steadfast, uncommitted, unwavering, unshakable, always and forever love. God's steadfast love is good news for you and for me. That God's steadfast love is not something we earn or achieve. God's steadfast love for us, his people, is not something that we have to attain on our own, but it is something that is given to us without restriction and without qualification. But the problem is, or the challenge maybe is a better way of saying it, is the challenge is oftentimes you don't really trust in God's steadfast love. The challenge is that you hear about God's steadfast love, you read this psalm and you see it at the beginning and you see it at the end, but it's hard for you to trust that God's steadfast love is actually steadfast and it's actually forever and ever. 
And we go into patterns of trying to make ourselves more lovable, trying to attain a sense of worthiness, and fail to see that God's love is a gift. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something you can achieve. It's not something that you can be good enough and then receive. And notice what this does for David. The reality of God's steadfast love gives David this anchor, this, this, this poise, this humility, this confidence to recognize evil for what it is, to name it for what it is, to release and, and trust God's judgment for what it is, and to revel and to enjoy and delight in God's steadfast love. And David goes on and says, I'm going to thank you forever because you have done it. Notice it's in the past tense there. You have done it. You have secured this for me. You have brought me into your covenant love. You have brought me into your house. It is done. It's sealed. It's final. And I'm going to wait for your name for it is good, David says, in the presence of of the godly. And I want us to see how important that is. That I think for so many of us who have experienced evil, who have witnessed evil, that we need, yes, an anchoring in God's steadfast love for us, but we also need each other. Notice what David says, I'm going to wait for you in the presence of the godly. That perhaps the invitation of the Spirit this morning to you is to allow someone else to know the difficulty, the struggle, the evil that you've experienced and to wait on the Lord together. To not be isolated. To not be alone in the, in the reality of the things that you might have experienced in your life, but to, to trust that as you rely on God's steadfast love and as you bring that into the light, to wait on the Lord in the presence of of the godly. That so much of the healing that the Spirit might want to bring and does want to bring is not in those moments where we just try to isolate, keep those secrets to ourselves, but in a very similar way. As we talked about last week, Psalm 51. If Psalm 51 was like a confession of the things that maybe we have done, maybe the Spirit's invitation of Psalm 52 is a confession, if you will, of the things that maybe have been done to us, the evil that we have experienced, and to allow other godly people to walk with us, to help us wait on the goodness and the steadfast love of God. And friends, if this is true for David, how much more is this true for you and for me today? I mean, think about the greater David, who we sung about at the beginning of our worship service. The greater David, Jesus himself, who recognized evil for what it was. He said himself, the son of man is going to be handed over into the presence, into the hands of sinners. Jesus himself, who released judgment to God. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And Jesus himself rested in God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, Jesus himself is the one who has taken on God's judgment for you and for me. Jesus is the one, through his life, his death, and resurrection, 
who has taken on the judgment that you and me deserve and has freed us and has saved us and has invited us into a life where we now are anchored in God's steadfast love. That as a demonstration of his steadfast love for you, he took on the judgment that you and I both deserve. Miroslav Wolf again says this, the world to come is ruled by the one who on the cross took violence upon himself in order to conquer the enmity and embrace the enemy. I'm reminded of Peter's words when Peter the apostle says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continue, listen to this, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Friends, this morning, do you trust that God judges justly? Do you trust that God will right every wrong Do you trust that God is making all things new in your life? Not just in in an abstract sort of idea, but in your life. And perhaps the Spirit's invitation for so many of us in this room is to be honest, to recognize the evil for what it is, to entrust ultimate justice and judgment to God. And for those that have experienced horrendous evil, that the spirit of Jesus might come and comfort and bring healing to you this morning. So Father, we ask and we pray. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us. Help us as your people to see and to recognize First off, who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, help us at the same time to be honest with things that we've witnessed, things that we've seen. And so, Spirit of God, I ask that you would right now, in particular and individual ways, bring comfort to your people. Spirit of God, that you would free us from seeking to get revenge. You'd free us from ways that evil might define us or seek to define us. God, I pray that you would help us to be anchored in your steadfast love into your goodness and your promises. Lord, that you would bring flourishing and life to your people. So Spirit of God, do that work this morning. We love you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.